Hey, what's up, everybody, especially those who are watching us in our San Jose campus and all of you who are watching across the country and across the world, vis-a-vis all the various social media and various online platforms that we have. I am so excited that you're joining us. This is the third week, guys, third week of this series called Coming Home. First, before we jump into this extremely important teaching, uh, we are approaching, we're a week out from Easter, and I just want to encourage you to think about this. Uh, You've been praying for people, those of you who have been participating in our PF40 This is the week that I want to suggest to you that you consider inviting them, joining us for our Easter celebration. Invite them to do Easter with you. If they are living across the country, across the world, invite them to watch us online. You can even do a watch party. If they are local here in the Bay Area, invite them to come to church with you and just check out what God is doing. And my prayer is that God will do something super, super special for them. After all, You've been praying for them. For those of you, may, you may not have been in participating in the PF40. I st- I, listen, I believe that God is going to do really something special. I want to encourage everybody watching me. Invite family and friends. Join us. Join us for what God is going to do next weekend at Easter. All right? God, we ask that you bless this teaching today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, guys, this is the third week, the third week of our teaching about around this series, Coming Home. And if you've missed the first few weeks of teaching, I want to encourage you to just go to our website and check it out. Today, I want to talk about breaking the power of selfishness. So let's look at this text that we have been looking at for quite for the last few weeks inside of the context of what is often referred to as the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 12 Here's what the passage says. And Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And there ends the reading. Everybody say, amen. Praise God. You know, this weekend is what, Jesus' followers all across the country and all over the world call Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday that we uh, remember the very last time that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem. It's often referred to as the triumphant entry. When Jesus rides in uh, on a donkey, one of the gospel writers says both on a donkey and a coat, uh, he comes in and the people greet him with shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, which Uh, is really translated blessed and praise and adoration. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as he comes in, it is as though a king is coming in, being coronated for his coronation. And within the next few days, that, that entry would launch what we call Holy Week. And by the time Friday would arrive, those same people who were saying, Hosanna, praise he who comes in the name of the Lord, will be crying out, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And on Calvary's cross, in the form of capital punishment, he will be put to death. The innocent one for those who are of sin. That's all of us. This is a special week that we enter in. Holy week as we think deeply. So if you have not joined our PF40 uh, 
effort, this would be a good week to spend some time in extra prayer to sign up for the email that I send every day. I encourage you to do that. Now, here's what's fascinating about that week. It's actually rooted in the larger context of our teaching uh, for today and the teaching for this series. You see, interestingly enough, uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 15 begins uh, with this particular verse. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even daring to eat with them. This is the kind of behavior that caused a great rift between Jesus and the other religious leaders. They, they were confused. They, they found him uh, eating with people who were notorious sinners. I love the way this says that. You might imagine in today's context, we're talking about drug pushers and, and potentially prostitutes and, and uh, you know, criminals. And, but these folk, they were fascinated to be around Jesus. He was curious about them, and he was interested in their story, and they were curious about him, and they were interested in his teaching. But the religious leaders... Can somebody say dysfunctional? Yeah, it was just a bit dysfunctional in that, in that they just couldn't understand. They said, are you condoning their sins? And the answer would be no. Jesus is not condoning sin, but he is affirming the value of these individuals, that he loves them and the Father loves them. And since they missed the point, he shares a series of stories. He begins by saying, you know, there was a, a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and his, you know, the father's love is like the shepherd with a hundred sheep and one escapes and he goes and look for them. Or it's like a mother who has 10 coins and she loses one and she turns the house upside down. She goes to look for them. But they're still kind of missing the point. And the real point that he really wants to get them to see is that, hey, guys, you know what? You're the children of the father, but you don't have the father's heart. I've been trying to teach you about this. And so he tells this story about, about this man who has two sons. And the elder son really represents the religious leaders who, who are a part of the father's house, part of the father's family, but they don't have the father's heart. And the younger son represents those notorious sinners, if you will, who just tend to enjoy kind of hearing what Jesus has to teach. They're trying to figure out, can they make their way back? I'm going to talk a little bit more about this next week. Don't miss uh, next week on Easter Sunday morning. And so here's the first point I want to highlight for people who are listening. Check this out. The father in this particular story. This father represents God. And this father has two dysfunctional children, an older and a younger. So here's the insight. God has dysfunctional children. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? We should know that, right? I mean, like, if I am one of his child and you're one of his child, so that should be sufficient to prove the point, right? God has dysfunctional children. As a matter of fact, God has a radically dysfunctional family. And here is the insight. Uh, if God, who is perfect in all of God's ways, end up with dysfunctional children, you ought to cut yourself some slack. 
If God, in all of his perfection, ends up with imperfect and dysfunctional kids, why don't you and I simply lean in on his grace and his mercy? And if we need to ask for forgiveness along the way, because these kids do not come with, here's how-to manuals, right? Uh, And the best we have in terms of trying to raise our kids has a lot to do with how we were raised. And sometimes that was good. Sometimes that was bad. Oftentimes it was a mixture of all of that. And, you know, we do the best we can with what we have. And even if you were perfect, according to this remarkable text, this father who represents God had two dysfunctional kids, even if you were perfect, you would still end up with imperfect kids with dysfunction. Now let's look at the text a little closer. The youngest son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. You know, we looked at this last week. It's a fascinating passage, isn't it? We looked at it last week, and we talked about this notion how the father agreed to divide his wealth. But this week, I want to just focus in on that part of the passage which says, the youngest son, he says, I want my share. What we're actually looking at in context, writ large, is selfishness. And here's the question that I want you to ask yourself. Is it possible that there is the power of selfishness uh, in, in large or in small ways? Is it operating in my life or at least in my sphere? Uh, where, is there some selfishness that I need to be aware of? Now, just so that we're clear about what I mean by selfishness, I don't want to get into this debate between where's the line between selfishness and self-care. Uh, here's the definition. I just want to make it super clear about what I mean by selfishness. Selfishness is being concerned. Here's the word. Everybody shout excessively. Yes, excessively. Or shout exclusively. Exclusively. You can change the word for exclusively with only. Being concerned only for oneself or one's own advantage, or pleasure, or welfare, without regard to others. There it is. And I want to suggest to you, if you have a little bit of this definition of selflessness in your life, it's too much. And I want to suggest to you that all of us in different seasons of our lives definitely have selfishness in our lives. Now let's just look at what I call insightful characteristics of selfish people, just so that you can know. The psychiatrists have laid out these characteristics, but they are uniquely present in this young man as he makes this remarkable request. As a matter of fact, it's not a request. It's actually a demand. I want my share. And essentially, it, if you're reading it in the Greek, the actual literary is give me my part. And it's in the imperative mood, uh, which means it is a demand. He says, I want it and I want it now before you die. Doggone it, daddy. The law says that you're supposed to be, that I can't get until you die. And every day I wake up thinking, is this the day you're going to be dead? And you're still alive. Is this the day you're going to be dead? And you're still alive. So just go ahead and give me mine now. (laughs) Can somebody say selfish? (laughs) Selfish. Yes. Yes. Let's look at these characteristics. 
One is self-absorbed. And it often includes uh, a lack of empathy. This young man just could care less about how his demand affected his brother, affected his father, affected his family. He just could care less. A lack of empathy. If you could talk to this young man on the phone, you would be perhaps shocked to discover that if you talk to him for an hour, 57 minutes of this hour, this young man, because he's self-absorbed, would be, would be talking totally about himself. He would never ask you a question. And if he did ask you a question, how are you doing? Or what's happening in your life? Before you can answer the question, he'll steal the conversation. It'll come right back to him. If you could have a dialogue with this young man who is self-absorbed, and if you were the father perhaps trying to say, you know, can I just tell you about some pain that's in my life? What's hurting me? Or how what you've done has hurt me? Or how what somebody else has done has hurt me? The young man uh, would more than likely say, well, 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 before you do, let me tell you about how I'm hurt. Selfishness. Secondly, and you're uniquely under the power of selfishness, others are only means for needs to be met. You thingify other people. Essentially, he's saying, look, Dad, you're not dead yet. <laughs> Basically, at this stage in my life, the only good you are to me are the needs that you are meeting. I want my portion of your stuff. Thirdly, there's a false sense of entitlement, Right? Like he's entitled to his dad's stuff. Give me my part of your stuff. This is a young man. If you knew him, he probably is the kind of person who's always asking for stuff and, and requesting. Always expect that you should be there for him, support him, provide for him. But the moment you ask him to help you to be there for you, he's too busy. He doesn't have the capacity to make the sacrifice. Or he's asking questions like, what's in it for me? Selfishness. Selfishness. Uh, and then there are this, I would add this word, excessive uh, focus on the, the, the values for material acquisition. And in addition to that, this notion of self-promotion. He wants his inheritance. <laughs> Give me all the money. I'm going to go into a far country. And that's what he did. He goes into a country, right? So he can buy anything he wants. You can imagine him in your mind's eye. He's, he's promoting himself. He's got all the ladies around him. He's talking about how good he is. And the spending of money is suggesting to people that he's super successful. He's very accomplished. But at the end of the day, all of that is just a lie because the money he's spending is his daddy's money. It represents his daddy's accomplishment, not his not his. And then, of course, there's a greater potential to end up alone because you damage and destroy your relationships that sometimes people just at some point just get tired of being around self. And this young man ends up in a hog pen all by himself. And then, of course, it destroys families. It creates strains in relationships, as I've just said. By the time you get to the end of this story, you'll find that the, the, the ripple effect of this boy's irresponsibleness causes a rift between the father and the oldest son. Selfishness is a dangerous thing. And then it's difficult for people who are selfish to accept constructive criticism. If you were trying to correct this boy, you would find that he would immediately get upset. He's super, super sensitive. He would say, why are you attacking me? And why are you, why are you, why are you treating me like that? And then they tend to be unkind. 
when we're under the power of selfishness, we tend to be unkind. Not because we're trying to be unkind or unloving. It's just because we just don't care about anybody else but ourselves. And it comes across as unkind. As a matter of fact, selfishness is at the very heart of the word that we call sin. Because in the middle of the word sin is this I. This I is bigger, right, right, right? And you name the sin, whatever you call sin. Don't worry about what I call What you call sin, whatever that is, I guarantee you it is somebody who is super focused on them, on the I, the me, the my, at the detriment of others and at the detriment of God's will. How do you do? How is it? Is selfishness at work in your life? If you find yourself manipulating things just to get your way, that's another possible suggestion. No, no, it's a clear suggestion. Selfishness is at work in your life. And even if it's a little bit, a little bit is too much. Now, I want you to get this point. Selfishness is the opposite of Jesus' love. So part of what it means to become a disciple, a follower of Jesus, to grow in our relationship with Jesus is to become less selfish. This should be clear in the teachings of Jesus and what Jesus models himself. As a matter of fact, his death on the cross is the perfect example of this, this notion of, that destroys selfishness. Listen to what he teaches in Matthew 22. He says, look, the guy comes up to him and says, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies, well, you know what? You must love, shout love. See, selfishness is the opposite of love. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And, uh, and then he says later, the, the second commandment is equally as important. You must love your neighbor as yourself. The, 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 the love of God that is operating in the human heart uh, is, is, is never just exclusively focused on yourself. It, 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 it moves to prioritize God's heart. Come on now, inside of relating to others. This is what the Pharisees was missing. Uh, they didn't understand the heart of God. They were in their own superiority, selfish. How about you? How about me? So how do we break the power of selfishness? Well, I want to leave you today with what I want to call some power-breaking questions. And I want to back into it by returning to this text. And I want to just want to examine this just closely with you for just a few moments. Notice what the text says. Ah, the younger son told his father, I want, stop. I want to suggest to you that two of the most attractive and most dangerous words in the English language is I want. And what he wanted, he says, I don't want to delay it. I want it now, embedded in that remarkable set of words, is something that we call desire or desires. Now, I, I want to just say a word here. We're moving towards commencement seasons, and uh, you're going to have a lot of commencement address for high school students, middle, you know, and college students, and people getting graduates, and they're going to be commencement speakers who are going to stand up, and they're going to essentially say something like this. Watch this. They're going to say, they're going to say another word for desires are passions, and they're going to say, Follow your passions. They're going to say, uh, in, in so many words, allow your passions to shape and determine your dreams and go after them. 
Sometimes we say that here in the pulpit in the churches, you know, go after your passions. This story is a remarkable rebuke to a blanket statement that says, go after your passions. This is what the younger boy does. He goes after his passion. He follows his desires. And I want to suggest to you, we need to be cautious and careful about indiscriminately following our desires. Hidden in such a notion is selfishness. Or the Bible calls it selfish desires. You know, a guy I've been getting to know a lot about recently, uh, my friend John Ortberg is the one who introduced me to him, and uh, he is the late Dallas Willard, and he was a great Christian philosopher, philosopher and theologian, etc., and he talks about this notion of desires. I want, and first of all, he says that, that desire uh, is, is a gift that comes to us from God. Uh, that when it operates the way that it's supposed to, uh, it maximizes our capacity to process. We don't, have to, we don't have to think about every single thing that we do because desire moves us towards a particular action. And desire is uniquely designed as coming to us by God to move us towards the good. So let me just give you some examples. Uh, it, it, it automates your life, really, right? Oh, here's an example. So you say, I want to eat. That's desire at work saying uh, that the body is in need of being refueled. I want to sleep. That's desire at work saying that the body is in need of being renewed. Uh, uh, I want a banana. That's the body at work uh, uh, saying uh, that the desire is at work saying that the body is in need of potassium. Uh, I want uh, eggs. That's, the, that's desire at work, uh, the, the helping us to know that the, the body is uh, in need of, put, of, of, of protein. Oh, I want some salmon for dinner. That's perhaps this desire at work saying that the body is in need of, uh, of some uh, vitamin D. You see, it's designed to move us towards the good. But... Uh, Mr. Willard says that desire, blanketly, while it comes to us as a gift from God, can be dangerous. It can be dangerous because at the end of the day, here's what he writes. He says, desire in human beings have been malformed and twisted. So you now must always be suspicious of desires, even the desire of holiness. Watch this. And what he's saying is because of sin and the human condition and the brokenness of humanity, that which God has intended has now gotten twisted. Y'all ain't listening. So you cannot indiscriminately just go after your desires. And even when the desire, come on now, is for something wonderful like holiness, if you don't query the desire, you might discover that, that, that my, my, my pursuit of holiness is for twisted reasons. That was the Pharisees. That holiness, if it's being used to help you to be superior to others, that is a twisted reason. And so, Mr. Willard says, you've got to be careful. I love this point. I've got to read this quote. This is a great quote. He says, great civilizations have always set limits on saying no to desires, blanket, indiscriminate desires. 
He says, in our culture, we can't say no to anything except saying no. Everything goes. Just follow your passion. Now, what Mr. Willard says is this. Let me hasten because I want to move quickly. This, he says this. He says, here's the key to desire. God has designed it in such a way that it must be subordinated to what is good. And it's the role of my will to ensure that my desire is subordinated. It serves what is good. He says, some don't know they have a will that is distinct from desire because their desires has captured their will. He's just described the, the role of the world of an addict, for example. Uh, he's just described uh, the person who is in love uh, in a horrendous relationship, and they, they feel like, I have no will. I, I'm, I'm just trapped by my desire. I can't live without him. I can't live without this drug. I've got to have it. I've got to have it. Be careful about following indiscriminately, I want. This is what the prodigal son does. He follows what he wants. And he ends up in a hog pen. Our will, we're supposed to reflect, you see. We're supposed to take what we want and make sure that we are suspicious of it. We examine it. We inquire of it. Come on, we take it apart and we examine it. We test it. And the first question here in this context is one, so what do I want, right? That's all about desires. And two, is what I want, does what I want, does it align with what's good? What God says is good, what is good for me, what is good for the community, what's good for the neighborhood. Does it align with what is good? Now, my daughter is a fantastic poet. She really is. And at every holiday, we all request of her that she write poetry for us. Father's Day, Mother's Day, Christmas, so forth. She's brilliant. And almost inevitably, somebody sitting around the table says to my daughter, so you know what, you, you need to write a book of poetry or something of that nature. My wife immediately kicks in and says, uh, don't you go pursuing a degree in poetry writing. <laughs> she said, uh, because uh, you need to put food on the table. <laughs> you need to have a house over your head. Come on now. She said, she said listen, 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 listen. You go find a degree. Come on. Uh, what, what my wife is saying, the Lord, is make sure you interrogate. Come on, that, 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 that your desire is informed by what is good. Y'all ain't listening. See, see, because you, you can pursue a degree in poetry. I'm not trying to say anything about people with degrees in poetry. I'm just talking about, 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 about my daughter and what my wife is saying. See, see, you can pursue a degree in poetry, and if that's the only degree, and if you come out and you can't get a job, you'll be a homeless, hungry poet. <laughs> See, my wife said, go get a degree, get a job that you can secure your own home, you can put food on the table, come on now, and then when you got all that in place, now you go ahead and write some poetry. And if the book sells, great. If it doesn't sell, no worries. You still got a roof over your head. Make sure that your desires are integrated and informed by what is good. That's the point, y'all. So what do I want? 
And is what I want consistent, uh, is in alignment with what's good? That's the second question. Now, here's why Mr. Willis says we got to be concerned here. Because the way desire works is it, is it makes, it becomes obsessive with its target. And it narrows its vision. And it loses a sense of the horizon. And it, and it requires my will, my, 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 my examination of my brain in order to keep touch with the horizon. Let me give you a perfect example. And then I'll hasten on to get to the conclusion. I'm trying to get you how to break the power of selfishness that's hidden in desire in your life. Here's, here, here, here's a perfect example how desire can become obsessive. Uh, I just told you that, that when the body craves a banana, perhaps the body is saying, uh, perhaps the body is saying, I need some potassium. That's a good desire. That's a godly desire. But what happens when the body craves Krispy Kreme donuts? Can I give my testimony, y'all? Come on now. When the body craves Krispy Kreme donut, you, you find yourself narrowing down. You find yourself concentrated. You find yourself imagining and dreaming of the Krispy Kreme donuts. And so, and so you say, you know, I'm just going to stop by. I'm just a little my testimony. Stop by the Krispy Kreme. I'm going to have only one donut, y'all. But when the woman comes to the table, she says, what can I do for you? I said, I, can I have a half a dozen? Come on now. I, I, I'm narrow. Come on now. And, 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 but, but you miss the larger horizon. Is this consistent with what's good for you, Herman? Good for your health. Good for your family. But, 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 but I'm focused on the, on the six Krispy Kreme, y'all. And the larger horizon says diabetes. It says legs coming off. It says get, lose your sight. But, but come on now. If I don't engage my will and examine the desire... Somebody say, amen. Come on. <laughs> you see the point. Desire becomes obsessive. And before you know it, what you're saying you need will kill you. This is the plight of the young boy. What he thought he needed ended him homeless, friendless, jobless, foodless, in a hog pen of shame, doing the unthinkable. That's what he was pursuing. His passion, he was reaching for what he thought he needed. And then here's the last distinction that Mr. Uh, Willett makes. He says, we need to distinguish, watch this, desire from love. He says, we often use love when we're really talking about desire. We need to distinguish the two. Here's what he's mean. This, I'm still talking about hidden in desire. There's this notion of selfish desire, selfishness, we got to be aware. Here's his, 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 his example. He says, sometimes you say, we say, we love chocolate cake. But if you're chocolate cake and someone says, I love you, you would not expect that the very next action would be them t coming at you with a knife. <laughs> slicing you up and devouring and eating you. No, 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 no. If you're a chocolate cake and somebody says, I love you, I love chocolate cake, you're expecting to pick you up and, and rock you to sleep. You're, you're expecting them, they love, you love chocolate cake, that you're going to protect them and, and keep them from all hurt, harm, and danger and hungry people. <laughs> you got to know the difference between love and desire. 
You see, he says he loves you, but really he desires you or vice versa. What's the difference? Hmm. Here's an interesting. So here's the question. The first question is, what do I want? I want you to go home and ask yourself that. What do I really, really want? That's about desire. The second question is, once I figure out what I want, come on now, I'm trying to break the power of selfishness. I need to ask the question, is it consistent with what is good? Well, what, what God says is good for, for, for life. Is it consistent with what is good for community? Is it consistent with what is good for me and for my family? Come on, uh, love the Lord thy God and your neighbor as yourself. Is it consistent with what is good? And then, finally, is, it, is, it, is, is what I want consistent with God's love? Meaning, is it consistent with, with, with what, what the way that God loves? Is it consistent with what God would have for me and have for you? Is it consistent with love? Or is it simply raw, selfish desire? And then the last question is this. What am I becoming as I pursue this desire? What am I becoming? Where has it landed me? I love the text. The text says that the boy came to his senses. Mm. Suddenly he realized that in pursuit of what he wanted, he left what he needed. Mm. And here he is in the hog pen, come on now, of shame and guilt. And, and, and somewhere down inside, come on now, he realized that what he really needed was something infinite. I'm going to just talk about this a little bit because there's a part of him that's infinite. He needed a love that only the Father could provide. And, and he realized that, that if he was simply a farmhand in, on, in, in, his, in his Father's kingdom, watch this, it would be far better to be a farmhand in his father's kingdom and to be loved by his father than to be the star of his own show. So he said, I'm going to get up, y'all. Come on now. And I'm going to return to my father's home. I'd rather... I'd rather be a secondary character in his story than the main event in my own story. All I need what the father I challenge you. Make a rigorous assessment and make this your discipline. Be suspicious of your desires. Question them. Hmm. What are they? Are they in alignment with what's good? Are they consistent with the love of God? And ask God's Holy Spirit to empower you to break the power of selfishness, not just once, but regularly as we keep living our lives with and for Jesus. Amen.